Heavenly Father, just uh, good to be here this morning, good time of worship, good time of fellowship, and we just ask for your blessing now upon the teaching. As always, Lord, we pray that you would teach and we would listen, let your spirit guide and direct. And, um, and Lord, as always, too, we just want to pray for our men and women serving in the field, just keep them safe, bring them back safe, and also for just our nation, Lord, godly guidance and direction in all. In your name, amen. Second Timothy. Now, we started uh, Second Timothy last week, and if you remember correctly in the introduction, we talked about how... Normally out here, we do the verse by verse through the Bible, but a lot of times we don't do the second book right after the first book. You know, 2 Corinthians following 1 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians following 1 Thessalonians, etc. Because a lot of times the themes are so similar, and it comes a bit repetitive of, oh, well, we just covered that in the first book, and now we're repeating it in the second book. But we just finished 1 Timothy, and we went right into 2 Timothy, because 2 Timothy is a very unique book. 1 Timothy was written from Paul's perspective of writing to Timothy to encourage him how the church is supposed to run. How are we supposed to be an effective church? 2 Timothy has a totally different feel and theme. 2 Timothy is Paul's swan song. It's the last letter that he ever wrote. He is in prison at this time. He's on death row. He is awaiting his sentence to be put to death. So these are his final thoughts that he is putting down on paper. Now, obviously, the Spirit is leading and guiding and directing as he's writing this, but you can tell this is a very personal, intimate letter as he's writing through this. Now, generally, when we go through a study, we like to find the key passage of that book that we like to hit on each week. And we kind of talked about how in 2 Timothy, it's only four chapters long, and there's so many different topics that he's covering that it's hard to find the key passage. Well, somebody recommended this passage, and I looked at it after the study, and I thought, wow, that's a good one. This really does sum up the book. So the key passage here to 2 Timothy is found in chapter 1, verse 13. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me, and faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Because Paul's at the end. Hold fast, he says. I may be dying physically, the end may be coming for me, but hold fast. And the next verse there in verse 14, keep by the Holy Spirit which dwells in you. These are his final words here, hold fast, keep, stay focused on the task at hand. And 2 Timothy is a great book of reminding of staying focused on Christ no matter what's going on through our lives. Remember, he's writing this from a prison cell waiting death. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Generally, as we go through our books, we usually go verse by verse. And we finished last week in verse 12 of chapter 1. Well, 2 Timothy is a unique book because this, once again, is Paul's final book here. He mentions by name over 20 different people in this book. 20 different, over 20 different people is mentioned by name. And these names are so important and so unique, and they really spell out a neat picture. So what we're going to do today is we're actually going to cover all the names here that he mentions in 2 Timothy, and then we're going to come back and pick it up in verse 13 next week. So these names can be divided into a list. We have the good list. And we have the bad list. I really wanted to throw in an ugly list to make a Clint Eastwood reference, but I couldn't, couldn't just find an ugly list name. So we have the good and the bad. That's all we got is the good and the bad. So with that being said, we're going to do a lot of flipping today, but basically right in 2 Timothy. And I'm going to give you the reference where the name's at. We'll mention it, and then we're going to talk about this person. If we have background info, we'll mention the background info on them. If not, we're going to do a study of who they are as a person. Now, as you go through this list... I want you to take a look at your own stock and your own Christian life and your own marriage, your own life. Which person am I? Am I on the good list? Am I on the bad list? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And you may know people on the bad list. How am I handling them? How am I dealing with them? You may see some people on the good list saying, I need to work on that. So I hope you're blessed as we go through this. So with that being said, 2 Timothy. We're going to start here in verse uh, 14 of chapter 4. Verse 14 of chapter 4. It says in 2 Timothy 4.14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. Now, Alexander's been mentioned before. He was mentioned in 1 Timothy. Do you have any Alexanders in your life? People have done you a lot of harm? 
People that you're kind of upset at, let's be honest, you're holding a grudge at. Maybe you have some bitterness towards. Maybe you're an Alexander. Have you harmed somebody? You know you've done them wrong, but you don't care. Alexander the coppersmith did Paul much harm. Paul was bothered by this. Now, the key phrase here in this verse 14, though, is may the Lord repay him according to his works. Paul says it's not me and him, it's between him and the Lord. Mature Christianity is that we say, my grudge, I'm not going to allow it to become bitterness and anger and frustration. I'm going to give it over to the Lord. Because when you hang on to that bitterness, that anger, and that frustration, that will eat you up and tear you up inside. It truly will. Paul says it's between him and the Lord. May the Lord repay him. And some of you may be saying, I'm okay with that. I hope the Lord repays him with fire from heaven. I hope the Lord repays him with a miserable life. No, that's not what we're talking about here. God says, I see, I know, I know how he has wronged you. I will take care of it. If you're taking notes, Hebrews 10, verse 30. Hebrews 10, verse 30 says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Too often in Christianity, when we get wronged and we get hurt, we feel that we have the right to carry this anger, this frustration, this bitterness, because I was so wrong, I was so hurt, I can carry on to this, and I can carry a grudge against this person, because do you know what they did to me? No. May the Lord repay him for his works. When you take that power out of God's hands, you're trying to be judge, jury, and executioner. And the truth of the matter is, you may have some Alexanders that have hurt you, but you've also probably been an Alexander to somebody else. And so the first point we need to learn here is we will be wronged, we will be hurt. But we can't allow that bitterness and that anger to take the best of us. Because when we allow that bitterness and that anger to take the best of us, it destroys us inside. And as it destroys us inside, oh, it creates so many issues. So many issues. I had a quote sent to me a couple months ago from somebody about bitterness and anger. And we shared it with you a couple months ago in a message. And I just want to reread it because it bears repeating. It says, The root of bitterness is very difficult to dig out once you allow it to grow and spread. It will affect every relationship you have. It's like handing the person who hurt you the key to imprison you. You will remain in prison until you humble yourself and forgive. Not forgiving will put a wall between you and Jesus because eventually you will blame God for not stopping the person who has hurt you. You may end up doing to others what was done to you. The person you cannot forgive actually begins to control your life rather than the joy of the Lord. How many of us have been in that position? We're so angry, we're so upset, we allow a root of bitterness to get into our life and that bitterness takes over. It takes over our life, it takes over our marriage, it takes over our relationships with others, and we're just filled with anger and hate. God says, no, let me deal with it. Don't let the Alexanders get to you. What's the Christian response? Well, the Christian response is found in Matthew 5. You said it, it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Think about that. How many of you have been hurt by somebody? How many of you have been cursed by somebody? How many of you have been despitefully used by somebody? God says, what are you supposed to do? Love them, bless them, and pray for them. Once again, oh, I'll pray for them. I'll pray that they learn their lesson. No, 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 no. I just read a devotional recently where the pastor says, when you pray for somebody, it's nearly impossible to hate them. Lord, give them a good day. Lord, bless them today. Lord, go before them and open their eyes and their heart to you. You know how hard it is to hold anger and bitterness towards somebody when you're praying for them? And you're asking for the Lord's blessing to be upon them. And that's what God says to do. When you have an Alexander in your life that has hurt you, that has wronged you, and you're upset, and rightfully so upset, you can't allow that anger and frustration to control you. That will make you bitter. That will make you angry. That will destroy you. We need to pray for them. We need to pray that their hearts are open and that the Lord comes into their lives. That's what we really need to pray, to teach them in a godly manner of what the right step is. Now, continuing on that same note, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 8, we're introduced to two more people. It says in 2 Timothy 3.8, Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, 
So do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. Now, according to church tradition, Janus and Jambres were the two magicians, and I use that word lightly, in the court of Pharaoh. If you remember correctly back in the book of Exodus, when Moses went to the court of Pharaoh, he threw his staff down, which became a snake. He created, the, turned the water to blood. God blessed Moses to do all these miraculous signs. Well, what happened was Pharaoh said, well, I'm going to do these signs too through my uh, court magicians. And church tradition teaches that their names are Janus and Jambres. These are the ones that resisted Moses. Well, Paul says there's people in your life that resist you. Like, like Alexander, they do you harm, they resist you. And it's interesting, the names. Janus' name means he vexes or he angers. Do you have somebody that vexes you, that just angers you? When you think of them, they just make you upset. When you're around them, they just make you upset. That is a Janus. And it just builds up inside of you that anger and that frustration. And that frustration and anger then lead to what we just talked about, bitterness and wrath. God says no. But he also says you're going to have those people in your life. You may have people in your house that do it. You may have coworkers. It may be your spouse. maybe your friends, your family. It may be people you say, well, why are they the ones that vex me, that anger me? God says, do you have patience and love towards them? Patience and love go so far. And we have to make sure that we don't allow the Janices of our lives to vex us and anger us to bring us down. Now, Jambres is an interesting name. His name means foamy healer. I chewed on that one for a while. Foamy healer. Now, if you have a better idea, please let me know. I told the 830 service that they had a better idea to let me know so I could steal it and use it at the 10. No one had a better idea. So I'm going to tell you what I think foamy healer means. Healer is a promise of something good. Obviously, healing is good, so it's a promise of something good. But when something is foamy, there's no substance to it. We were at a, a water park recently, and at the bottom of the water slide, there was all this foam as the water comes down aerates. And Judah was just absolutely fascinated by that. He would go over and try to grab handfuls of this foam, and he wanted to carry it back to mom to show her. Well, as soon as you pick up foam, what happens? It just dissipates. It's there, but there's no substance to it. You can't pick it up. You can't hold it. And I think that's a picture of Jambres. He's a foamy healer. There's a promise of something good, but there's no substance to him. Do you know any Jambreses? Oh, they always have the right words. I'll I, I pray for you. I'll be there. I'll, you can count on me. No, I can't count on you. You're foamy. You have no substance. I've shared this with you before, and I'm not picking on people, but I know people that haven't been here in a while, maybe spiritually aren't where they're supposed to be. As soon as they see me, Pastor, you'll see me Sunday. Probably not. Not being rude. That's foamy. There's no substance to it. And when somebody is a foamy healer, the promise is something good, but no substance, it leads to problems. Maybe that's the way it is with some of their coworkers. They always say, I got your back. I'll be there for you. Don't worry about that. No, you're not there for me. Maybe that's the way it is in your marriage. I know sometimes the arguments that Dawn and I get into is for me being a foamy healer. She'll come up to me and she'll say something like, hey, I need, to, need you to do this. Hey, I'll do that right after lunch. Well, right after lunch, I do that. So next thing I know, I see Dawn doing what she asked me to do, and I went up to her and I said, Dawn, I said I would do it. She goes, you also said you would do it right after lunch. You know, foamy healer. I promise to do it, promise us something good, but there's no substance to it. Those are difficult people, difficult people to run. In fact, the book of Jude, in Jude 1 verse 12, he talks about people that are clouds without rain. Ever thought about that phrase, clouds without rain? Imagine you know, you're a farmer and you're in this drought-stricken condition and, and your crops are just dying. I mean, you're seeing the corn curl up. It's just dying in front of you. And so you see these big black clouds out to the west and you're like, finally. You see the lightning, you hear the thunder, and the black clouds are taking up the entire sky. You know it's not going to miss you. So as these storm clouds come, you get that initial burst of wind when that front comes through, and you're just waiting for the rain. The thunder roars, the lightning crashes, everything happens, but no rain ever falls. Foamy substance. 
The promise of something good and nothing ever came out of it. You're waiting to be refreshed. You're waiting to be uplifted. You're ready for that rain to fall to refresh you and nothing came out of it. You know people like that. You count on them and it just fails again and again. Worse yet, be honest. Are you somebody like that? Your word means nothing. These are the people that God is saying, be careful about, watch out for. We don't want to be the Alexander of holding bitterness towards somebody that's hurt us and we don't want to be Alexander to hurt people. We don't want to be Janus to be the people who are vexing people and making them angry. And we don't want to be ruined by that anger we have towards others. We don't want to be Jambres of the foamy healer. And then the next one we have here is Demas. Look at verse 10 of chapter 4, Demas. Actually, let's go back one verse to verse 9. Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me. Having loved the present world, he has departed for Thessalonica. Demas. Demas jumped ship, forsook Paul, and went to the world. Now, the interesting thing about Demas is Demas is mentioned three times in the Bible. And it's a progression. If you take Paul's writings and put them in chronological order, the first mention of Demas is found in the book of Philemon, chapter 1. And Demas is called a fellow laborer in Christ. Wouldn't you like to be known for all of eternity as a fellow laborer of Christ? That's a good term. I mean, all of history, when somebody's reading Philemon, they come across your name, James, fellow laborer. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, next you have in Colossians, Demas is mentioned again, the next, one of the next books that Paul wrote chronologically. And it says that Demas greets you. Now, I don't want to analyze. I don't know if Demas was a fellow laborer now greeting you. I don't know. Maybe Paul was writing Colossians and Demas popped his head in and said, Paul, what are you doing? I'm just writing a letter to the church in Colossia. Hey, well, tell him I said hi. I don't know. Demas greets you, you know. So Demas was in Colossians. Things were going good. Second Timothy, Demas has forsaken me and loved this present world and departed. He left. He's gone. That's tough. The truth of the matter is, I've been a Demas, you've been a Demas. We've all had moments where we've left the safety of Christ and jumped into the world for a little bit of supposed pleasure in flesh, and it's not worth it. I have a Christian friend that refers to something as flesh flashes. Where you jump into the flesh for a little bit, ah, it's not worth it. But yet, with Demas here, we're talking about a lifestyle where this guy, I don't want to say gave up on the Lord, but he's forsaken Paul and went to the world. That's hard. And we see that a lot of times, I'll just be honest, out here at church. You, you, you see somebody starting out good. Maybe getting involved with the discipleship, maybe get involved with some small group studies. They're, they're growing, they're coming, they're active. And next thing you know, they just start to fade away. And anytime that happens, Rich and I kind of look at each other and it's like, we've got to pray for them. It's a Demas. You see that just starting to fade away type thing. And as it starts to fade away, your, your, your heart just hurts because you're thinking, golly, you see that bright burning fire for Christ become a slow flicker for the Lord, then it just starts to disappear totally. One of the saddest things we ever see out here is when you see somebody so on fire for the Lord just slowly start to flicker out. Those hurt so bad. book of Proverbs says this in Proverbs 14, 14. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. You try to go up and talk to a team sometimes, they don't even realize what's going on. Hey, I haven't seen you while things going okay. Yeah, I'm doing good, I'm doing great. No, you're not doing good, you're not doing great. You may think you're doing good and great, but the truth of the matter is spiritually you're not. Or another telltale sign of a demon is you just mention a spiritual thing to them, not in an aggressive, attacking way, and they get angry. Why? Because they know they're convicted. They're not where they're supposed to be. They're, they're, that strong light is starting to dissipate. They're leaving and going back to the world, and it's just not worth it. Last time, a couple years ago, we talked on uh, Demas, and somebody came up to me and said, have you ever listened to the song by Casting Crowns called Slow Fade? And I said, you know, I never heard that, so I got online and listened to it, and I just want to read the chorus to you because this is a picture of a Demas. It says, it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day 
It's a slow fade. Isn't that the truth? People don't wake up one morning and say, you know what, I just want to backslide. It doesn't work that way. It's a slow progression of where they were one time strong, and then it becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. It's a scary place to be. And the truth of the matter is, if you have a loved one that's a demon, oh, it's tough. You want to go up to him and hug him with one hand and also choke him with the other and say, don't do this. The truth of the matter is, most of the time, they don't want to hear it. And you just the best thing you can do for a demon is just pray for them. Encourage them when God opens a door, and when the subject comes up, I'm concerned about you. I love you enough to tell you I'm concerned about you. And that's what we have to care, is we don't want to see these Demases forsake and go back to the world. And it goes right along with Demas. In uh, verse 15 of chapter 1, we're introduced to another guy here, Phygelus. Verse 15 says, These you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, real quick side note for you that have come out and heard me teach enough before, you know my rule on names in the Bible. As long as you say it with authority and like you know what you're talking about, people don't question you. I don't know how to say these guys' names. I'm doing the best I got. So if you've got something you want to think is a better way, tell me. I'm calling them Phygelus, and I'm calling them Hermogenes. That's what I'm calling them. I've never met them, but that's why I'm calling them. So Phygelus, his name is really interesting. On the same note as Demas of leaving and forsaking, Phygelus means little fugitive. Little fugitive. Now how many of us are a Phygelus sometimes? Running away from the Lord. We're that little fugitive. God says, be here. Lord, I don't want to be here. I want to be over there. God says, this is the best plan for your life, and if you're in this plan, you'll be safe and protected. I don't want to do what you want me to do. I want to do what I want to do. So we're a little phygelous, a little fugitive, running away from the Lord. God says, do A, I want to do B. Best example of that in the Bible is Jonah. God called Jonah, go to Assyria, preach, preach in Nineveh to the Assyrians. Jonah said, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't want to preach to the Assyrians, so I'm going and leaving the other direction. The equivalent would be, God says, go to Columbus, we go to L.A. I don't want to do it. How many times has God asked us to do something in life that we know is right, we know is good, we know is correct, and we just don't want to do it? Or if I jealous, we run away from God. That leads us to so many problems. last thing you want to do is run away from God. There's a great verse in the book of Job I like to quote a lot, where it says, why do you fight against the Lord? Why don't we do that? Our will fights against God's will. God says, love and forgive. I don't want to love and forgive. God says, obey. I don't want to obey. I want to be a phygelist. I want to be a fugitive. I want to run. Boy, it's not worth it. It wears you out spiritually, physically, and emotionally. When you spend all your time getting away from God's will for your life, it's just not worth it. There's no peace, no joy, no nothing. So that's our bad list. The Alexanders that cause harm. The Janices that vexes and angers. The Jambresses that are the foamy healers. The Demises that forsake and leave. The Phygelises that are the little fugitives. Now, you may know some people that are like that. Some of those people may have hurt you and wronged you, and that bitterness has gotten your heart. You need to forgive and forget and love and move on. It's difficult to do. Very difficult, but we need to. Number two, you may be in one of those spots. You may see your light beginning to fade. You may see yourself running from what God wants. I'm telling you right now, the worst thing you can do is run away from the Lord. It is never worth it in any way whatsoever. The best place to be is obedience. And one of the verses that we talked about during VBS was obedience brings blessings. When you are in God's will, that's where you want to be. The blessing is there, and that's where we want to be. So that's the bad list. Now we get to talk about the good guys here. There's some fun ones. Turn, if you will, to Mark. Excuse me. Turn, if you will, to Second uh, Timothy 4. Let's talk about Mark. Mark is in Second Timothy 4:11. Second Timothy 4:11. It says, "Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry." Now I like that. Mark is useful to me for ministry. And no, he didn't say Mark is needed. No one's ever needed. But it's nice to be useful. God doesn't need any of us. But Mark is useful. Now, you would probably read that verse, and if you don't know Mark's background, you may say, okay, nice, let's move on here. You've got to know Mark's background. Well, in Acts chapter 12, Mark went on a missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. 
Mark was a young guy. The Bible tells us that he was actually Barnabas' cousin. So Mark goes on this missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 12. Well, in Acts 13, the missionary journey gets a little rough. The Bible says in Acts 13 that Mark left the missionary journey, went back. Well, back in Acts 15 now, Paul and Barnabas are done with this missionary journey, and they're getting ready to go out again. So uh, Barnabas says, I want to take Mark with me. Paul says, no. Barnabas says, I want to take Mark. Paul says, no. Paul says, I'm not going to take the guy that left us. Well, the Bible says in Acts 15 that the contention between Paul and Barnabas got so great, they actually separated and split. But you think that church splits only happen now. Church splits happened 2,000 years ago. Sin nature is all around. The same things that we still fight and argue about now, they fought and argued about 2,000 years ago. So Paul and Barnabas split. Barnabas takes Mark, and that's what happens. So if you would just finish in Acts 15, you would think, great, black eye on the church. Paul and Barnabas aren't getting along. Paul doesn't like Mark. No peace here. That's what's so vital about this verse. Get Mark. Bring him with you. He's useful to me for ministry. Mark has been restored. Paul says, I can use this guy. Maybe you've been a Mark. Maybe you have been, I don't know, you brought a lot of baggage into your walk with Christ. So much baggage that you say, I can't be useful for God. Look at my past choices. Look at my past mistakes. Look at what I've done. I can't be used by God. Oh, no, you can. You can still be useful for ministry. You just get restored by God. Isn't it a beautiful thing, is grace and mercy? Maybe you tried doing ministry one time. And remember our phrase when we went through 1 Timothy, every member is a minister. Everybody has a ministry that they do. Maybe that phrase ministry just means to serve. We all have a place to serve. Maybe you tried serving and you kind of quit halfway through. Too tired, too much, too much work, too much life, I don't know. Kind of gave up. So you just feel like you can't do it again. I failed, I didn't finish. No, you can still be useful to the ministry. Isn't it an amazing thing, these little marks that are useful? See, we'd skip over verse 11 and not think too much about it. No, we have a lot of marks in the body of Christ. Maybe some past choices, some past mistakes, some baggage that you feel keeps you from where God wants you to be. No, you can still be useful to the ministry. God can use you. You can be restored. What a beautiful blessing and picture that is of God bringing us back to where we need to be. The next people we like to look at here is in verse 19 of chapter 4. It says, Greet Prissa and Aquila. Now, Prissa is also known as Priscilla, so I'm going to call her Priscilla. So Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila are a good couple. They are the greatest, I think, picture of marriage in the Bible. They are such a neat example of marriage. They serve together. They minister together. In Acts 18, you see Priscilla and Aquila opening up their lives to Apollos, and they basically disciple Apollos there. You see also in 1 Corinthians 16 that Priscilla and Aquila opened their house up for the church to meet in their house. What a neat blessing that is. I, I tell you, this is something that's impacted me when I first got saved and also after I've been married. When I first got saved, I was so thankful. Jim and Bonnie Crager opened up their house and let me come over so much. Richard and Betsy Betts let me come over, and Richard and Betsy are the ones that discipled me. I was so thankful to have those Priscilla and Aquilas in my life that opened up their life to me. I'm so blessed by that. And so now Dawn and I, in our marriage, we like to open up our house to have people come over. Maybe there's somebody new to the church and just, hey, come over and hang out for a while. Come over and hang out. Hopefully we can encourage them. They're new to the walk, new to their faith, and just hopefully be a godly example of what Christians are supposed to be in marriage and say, come over and just hang out. You don't have to do a whole lot. Just come over and spend some time with us. Same thing with open up the house. We used to have a Bible study in our house and it was such a blessing time to open up the house and just say, we want to be here and hopefully be a good godly example in all that we do and say. So to married couples, have you opened up your life to bless somebody. Have you been a Priscilla and Aquila where you say, we will take our marriage, open up our marriage, and let's go find somebody in the body and bring them into our life 
Encourage them, uplift them on a regular basis. Have you opened up your house? Have you brought somebody under your wing to say, we want to encourage them and help them? It will be such a blessing to you. Now, some of you may be saying, I can serve with anybody except my spouse. So, anybody but my spouse. Don and I used to be that way. We found it very difficult to serve together. And part of the reason why I think it found it so difficult to serve together is because Dawn's normally wrong, and she won't admit it. But once, once she admits, you guys are like, oh, oh, I know, I hear the groans. Um... You just don't like honesty. Um, but the truth of the matter is, I think sometimes where you're the most powerful together is obviously where Satan tries to hit you. And I believe a couple together, united in marriage, serving the Lord, is a really powerful, powerful unity right there. This is a wonderful example. You've got to remember, marriage is a picture of you and your relationship with Christ. So when that marriage is strong, it's a great picture of Jesus and us. And so when you have a married couple united together in ministry, that's a powerful tool. Of course the enemy's going to try to hit it. Of course he's going to try to hit it there. So have you brought somebody in under your wing? I think it's interesting that we use that phrase under your wing because Aquila's name, his name means eagle. I think of that passage there in Isaiah where it says, we shall mount up on the wings of eagles. And you have this majestic picture of this guy here trying to bring people under his wing, encourage them, uplift them, watch out for them, take them deeper in their walks with the Lord. And Priscilla's name, her name means ancient. Now, I didn't make this up, okay? So I'm saying it in a good way, not like she was old and decrepit or something like that. I'm saying the ancient in the sense of wisdom and wise. And so therefore, when you have the Aquilas that are the wise gals that have been there, they can help encourage the younger generation of women. We've said this numerous times out here. What we like to try to do is to hook up a new believer with an older, mature believer. We think it's a great combo. That new believer has that excitement and just to go deeper in their walk with the Lord, while the older believer has that wisdom and maturity. And we'd like to see that combination come together. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, they uh, combined the two studies out here. They took the girls' teen study and the uh, women's Bible study on Friday, and they actually put them together for one study study to be an encouragement and to say, hey, can the older generation help the younger generation? And what a neat blessing that was. So you have these Priscilla and Aquilas, full of wisdom and strength that are there to open their lives and marriages up to people to bless them. I encourage you, if you're a married couple out here, really prayerfully consider that. You could really bless some people and to be a godly example of what you do and say. Now, those are the two main guys when we talk about individually. Now, the rest of these, we got about 15 people here that there's maybe just little one-liners about. And so what we want to do is take all these names and put them together and build a big picture of this. If you guys want to put that PowerPoint up there, here's the first group that we want to talk about. And all these names mean something. And these are the first group here that we want to mention. And I think as you go through these names that are mentioned here, I want you to look at the, what their names mean and their character traits, because I think what this really is is a listing of traits that we're supposed to be as Christians. Some of these you may check off and say, yep, I got that one, I'm good. Some of these you may look at and say, yeah, I'm really struggling with that one. I could really use some prayer in that area. The first guy there, Putin's mentioned, his name means modest. That's a good trait for Christians. We're supposed to be modest. There's nothing that we do. It's all God. To him be the glory. There's, you know, If you look throughout the Bible, God can work with most anybody or anything. One thing God will not work with is what? Pride. If you feel you are God's greatest gift to the church in the body of Christ, God says, I can find somebody else to work with. He won't work with pride. Modesty of realizing it's all the Lord and not us. Next one there, Ubulus. His name means prudent, which means wise. Wouldn't that be a neat description of you if someone come up and say, hey, what are you like as a Christian? Well, that person is very wise, very prudent. What a great description that people would come to you and feel like they could trust your advice, trust your counsel, because you're going to give them God's word and scriptures. We want to be wise according to the things of God. Very wise. The Bible actually says, be naive in the things of the world and wise in the things of God. We want to be prudent. Next one there, Titus, which means comfort. Boy, we could use more Tituses in the body of Christ. We have a lot of people in the body of Christ that are willing to point out your sins. 
We've got a lot of people in the body of Christ that are willing to pick up stones and throw them at you. We've got a lot of people in the body of Christ that's willing to push legalism. We don't have a lot of Tituses that just say, I want to comfort you in your difficult time. In fact, Titus was such a neat guy. In 2 Corinthians 7, he's there comforting the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 8, he's there comforting the church in Corinth again. He is called a fellow worker, a fellow laborer, and he's constantly comforting people. Wouldn't you like to be that person that they always knew they could come to you and you would give them godly comfort and wisdom and guidance? We need more Tituses because what happens is we get ourselves caught up in sin and we start saying, I can't. I can't go talk to anybody because how embarrassing is this? I can't show my face in church because I haven't been there in so long. I can't do this because I'm so full of sin. No, we need Tituses that will come to you and say, God loves you and we love you. We may not agree with you, but God loves you and we love you and we want to point you in the right direction. We need people that have that gift of comfort, that Titus. Next one there, Erastus and Tychius. It's beloved faithful. In fact, Tychius, when he's mentioned in two other books of the Bible, in the book of Ephesians, also the book of Colossians, he's constantly called beloved and faithful. Wouldn't you love to be described by your friends as beloved and faithful? They're a beloved friend. They're always there for me. They're always pointing me in the right direction. They're always trying to encourage me spiritually. They're always faithful. I may not do what's right sometimes, but I know they're there to point me in the right direction and show me the love of Jesus and be honest enough to tell me I care about you, that your sin could hurt you. We need those Erastus and Tychius, the beloved, faithful people to watch out for the body of Christ. Now these two we're going to put together here, Claudia and Trophimus. Claudia means lame. Sorry, gals, you're just not getting the good names here in 2 Timothy. Now, lame, I don't know why she was named, had that name that means lame. I don't know if there was some type of physical condition. I don't know. But I do know this. There's a lot of people in the body of Christ that when they look at themselves, they feel like they're lame, maybe physically. You know, you're always talking about cleaning the church and the car care ministry and VBS and helping in the back. I physically just can't. There's nothing I can do. Or maybe lame emotionally and spiritually. I am such a deep, dark place in my life right now, I couldn't serve. I'm so full of depression and discouragement. There's nothing I could do. I am lame. That's just a lie from the pit of hell. There's always something you can do. You may not physically be able to help take care of the kids. You may not physically be able to help move. You may not physically be able to make meals. By golly, you can take that prayer list home and pray for it every day. And if you think that that is not a useful ministry, then you don't fully understand the power of prayer. You may be able to pick that phone up and call somebody and say, I just want to encourage them. You may be able to take a pen and write a card to somebody, drop it in the mail and say, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. You may not physically be able to do a whole lot, but you are useful to the ministry. Don't ever think that you are so lame that you can't do anything because that's not the way it is. And it's kind of interesting because Trophimus, check this guy out. Look in your Bible right here. And uh, where was he mentioned? Let me find the reference. Verse 13. Actually, excuse me, not verse 13. uh, Verse 20, Trophimus. It says, Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus. Sick. Now, don't you think that's interesting? Trophimus's name means nutritious, but in verse 20, he's called sick. Now, God doesn't mess things up. This is not just a little mess up where it's like, oh, what an interesting coincidence. His name means nutritious, but yet he's sick. I think there's a point there. I think the point that sometimes we look in the spiritual mirror and the only thing we see is we're sick. I can't do this. I can't fix this. I can't help here. And so we're sick Physically, we're sick spiritually, we're sick emotionally, and so therefore I am no use to the body of Christ. And God says, no, you are nutritious. There's actually something you can do. What can I do? Like we've already said before, you can pray, you can encourage, you can uplift. We need beloveds, we need faithfuls, we need comforters, we need prayer warriors, we need all those type of people. The church is built off the machine of prayer. We need those people constantly praying for the church, the pastor. Nothing else, take the directory home with you. You may not even know these names, and I'm just going to pray for them every day. So, you may be physically, emotionally, or spiritually lame, 
or sick, but isn't it nice to know that God so looks at you as being nutritious and of use to the body of Christ? Don't let that discouragement of what you can't do pull you down to the point that you don't do anything. There's always something you can do to be useful to the body. Let's jump to the next list here. Now, these next group of names that we're bringing up, the first names are a little bit more of character traits. This gets into a little bit more of what God wants us to be. Look at these names. I don't even know how to pronounce that guy's name. Anasferu. Yeah. So his name means bringing profit. Carpus, fruit, Christians growing, Luke, light giving. Now think about that for a second. Isn't that the picture of what you're supposed to be as a Christian? Doesn't God want you to bring profit? I don't think I mean materialistically here. The profit of souls. The profit of the body of Christ. Of seeing people grow and go deeper in your walk and their walks in the Lord. To bring profit in. Next one, fruit. Isn't that what God wants is fruit? In fact, in the book of John, John 15, he says, the reason I have appointed you is to go bear fruit. How many times have we said it out here? The two W's in life, worship and witness. God has created you to worship him, and the next thing is to do is to be a witness for him as you're supposed to go produce fruit. We live in a farming community. What good would it do to go out there and plant the corn, plant the beans, plant the wheat, but not ever expect it to grow? How pointless would that be? The purpose we are here is to produce fruit for the Lord, to make a difference in our families, to see our kids grow up in Christ, to see our co-workers and neighbors get saved, to make a difference is we want to bring profit into the kingdom. We want to see fruit, and also Christians there, we want to be growing personally. I really hope and pray that there is a desire in all of us to say, I want to be a better Christian. Not some type of legalism of I have to, not some type of burden put on by the pastor or the church, but just, I love Jesus Christ so much, I want to be a better believer in Christ for him. I want to grow in my marriage. I want to grow to see my kids grow up and know the Lord. I want to grow in my relationships with others. I want to grow in Jesus. Because the purpose of why we're here is Luke, to be a light giver. In Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Jesus said, you're the light of the world. And in John chapter 12, he says, you're the sons of light. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The world is this dark, decrepit place. And the picture of us is supposed to be a beacon of light in that dark place. You may be the only Christian at work. Hey, go be a light. You may be the only Christian in your house. Go be a light. You may be the only Christian in your class at school. Go be a light. That's why we're here. We're here to be the Lukes, the light givers, to shine for Christ in these dark times of life. So when you put this all together, you have to stop and ask yourself. Number one, the bad. I hope you're not being the Alexanders, the Janices, the Jambuses, the vexing, the angering, the foamy healers. I hope we're not in the Demas or the Phygelus areas of running from God and backsliding, but if you are, I want to tell you this, God loves you, and he wants today to make everything right again. You can come back to him and be restored. Isn't that beautiful? You can come back to him right now and have that life restored of where you're supposed to be. It's such a simple thing to do. If God has put something on your heart to do, the best thing you do is have that obedience. Quit running. Don't be the little fugitive. Listen to him. But then looking at the other ones, aren't you glad that there's a mark? Even though we brought baggage into the kingdom, God says, I can still restore you. We need more Priscilla and Aquila's, that godly example of marriage, of bringing people into your house and home to encourage them, to uplift them, to disciple them. We need the Tituses of comfort. We need the you know, prudent wisdom of the Eubuluses. We need all these different character traits. We need to be wise and comforting and beloved and faithful. The problem is we don't focus on those things. We have a tendency to focus on the uh, Trophimus, I'm sick, and the Claudia, I'm lame. God says, don't allow those things to pull you down. I'm going to share with you a verse that we just finished in the book of uh, Corinthians, starting in 2 Corinthians. This is how Paul summed up something. 2 Corinthians 12, 10, he goes, Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You realize that when you feel you're so sick you can't do anything, 
God says, I can still use you. When you feel like you're so lame, I can't do anything, God says, I can use you. Isn't that a beautiful picture? No matter what state you are in, God can use you for the furthering of the kingdom. Now, we may focus on what is wrong. We may focus on what we can't do. Satan may try to pull us down with depression and discouragement. But God says, I can use you. I can use the Claudiuses of this world. I can use the Trophimuses of this world. I can use you. Why? Because just as those last words says, we're here to bring profit to the kingdom. We're here to produce fruit for the kingdom. We're here to grow in our relationship with Christ. And ultimately, we're here to give the light of Jesus Christ out to a very dark world. So when you see these names in 2 Timothy... And as we go through these names here of these next few weeks, don't think they're just names thrown in there for no reason. They have a purpose, they have a plan, and they have a background to them that is a wonderful picture of our walk and relationship with Christ. And I hope as you go through these things, they blessed you, and I hope you learned and said, okay, Lord, where am I at, or where do I need to be to grow and go to that point? Marv, if I can come forward here for the final song. As Marv's getting ready to come up, let's just have a, a quick word of prayer here.